Hosea chapter 3, which at least is short. Um, Marriage is both an objective reality and a dynamic relationship. You make those vows, the words are pronounced. Now, somebody who does the occasional marriage, it's astonishing to me that I can say those words and it happens. And now pronounce you husband and wife. Something solidly real has come into existence. We We wear rings to signify marriage, but, you know, if I take my ring off, doesn't actually stop me being married, that doesn't change. In fact, whatever I feel, I'm married. Objective reality. But neither is it a case, well, that's it, you're married, that's it, happy ever after. Marriage is a dynamic relationship. Loving, being loved, growing in knowing and being known through the ups and downs through changing moods, changing circumstances, and with lots of patience and forbearance and forgiveness along the way, love growing into something far richer and deeper than merely a warm, fuzzy feeling. So there is both an objective reality and a dynamic relationship. And that's no coincidence in God's plan because God designed marriage that way specifically that way, as a signpost to point to the ultimate fulfillment of marriage, which is the relationship God has with his people. Just by the way, uh, for single folk out there, single is a horrible word, isn't it, really? But it's, it's, it's not true of single believers, because for single people out there, you already have in Christ the fulfillment of which marriage points. Um, which is good to remind ourselves of that reality. But it's an objective reality, this relationship we have with the Lord. Once we're united to the Lord by the Spirit, that is it. We are His. No matter how close to Him we feel day by day, we might doubt His love for us. We might stray into sinful and unfaithful ways. In fact, we do, don't we? But that objective reality doesn't change. And yet, at the same time, there is this dynamic relationship through life's ups and downs, through dry times and high times. Our relationship grows and deepens and develops. But of course, as with marriage, so with our relationship with the Lord, it takes two to tango. What if one of the partners no longer wants to dance. That's what we've got in Hosea. In Hosea's prophecy, God uses Hosea's own desperately dysfunctional, painful marriage as a devastating picture of Israel's unfaithfulness to him, the Lord. And then his, the Lord's, determination to win her back. Uh, we've seen that laid out for us in uh, chapters uh, 1 and 2. Those are the, 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 uh, the headings we had la- in those last two chapters. Uh, in chapter 3, we have the denouement. God told Hosea to marry a woman 
with a decidedly dodgy background. She was a prostitute, no less. And having got married, his wife, Goma, betrayed him. We're told that very clearly at the start of chapter 3, uh, that she is an adulteress, and she's loved by another. Now, we've said that quite likely... Uh, before marriage, she was perhaps associated with the uh, pagan sexual practices that surrounded bar worship, which was uh, uh, what was going on in the land before Israel arrived, and uh, they didn't uh, get rid of these practices, and as time went on, they were more and more tempted to adopt these practices or bring them into their own worship, or at least that's what they thought they were doing. And that that fact that so many Israelites were caught up, that this particular woman, sorry, Goma, was caught up in that is actually a microcosm of Israel's greater unfaithfulness to the Lord, running after false gods instead of sticking faithfully to the Lord. So when we reach chapter 3 and we read about Goma's adultery, well, maybe, has Goma returned to those practices again? Well, possibly. It does seem that at this point she's actually left Hosea, gone off, gone with someone else. Imagine Hosea's pain. Imagine his shame that uh, for some twisted reason the betrayed one often feels when it's the other person's shame, really. Imagine all those people telling him, I told you it would never work. He did warn you. He'd be at least, at the very least, doubting whether the, these children with such bizarre names, whether they are actually all his. And now as he reels in pain, the Lord addresses him again. Again, this is what it actually says, again, go and love your wife. That's what it says, rather than show your love. Go and love your wife. Hosea is the innocent party, but he's commanded to go and love home, uh, Goma. Love even though she's with someone else now. Now, Hosea is telling us all this in a very matter-of-fact way, but can you imagine? Can you imagine how hard this is for him? For his pride, how humiliating to go and woo her back, as it were. In fact, that's not all. Verse 2, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethek of barley. Now, he didn't just go and bring her back. He had to buy her back. Now, this is very strange for us, the idea of buying a person back. Um, what's going on here? Well, um, the price paid is round about the price of a slave. And it's maybe the case that Goma has actually somehow sold herself into some kind of bonded labor relationship with this person that she's gone with. Uh, maybe, maybe Hosea actually has to barter for her. Imagine that. Can you imagine being in... Did I say Homer then? Hosea has to barter for her. I'm going to say that a lot. It's that Hosea and Goma thing going on, isn't it? Uh, he has to barter for her. But Hosea does that. He buys her back. He redeems her. That's what the re word redeem means. We, 
we have it a lot in Christian circles, to buy back. And it costs him deeply to do so. The monetary price being only a small part of that cost, actually. There's a huge cost to Hosea to do this. But still, it takes two to tango. And so he says to her, after buying her back, I told her you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will live with you. In other words, stay faithful. Stay faithful to me. I've bought you back. This is the response he's now looking for from Goma. Now, this is an astonishing action on Hosea's part. It's heroic, isn't it? How on earth did he find the love in his heart, not to mention the strength in his will, to go through with this? Well, maybe because his love is rekindled as he thinks about God's love for Israel, because that's what the Lord says to him, isn't it? He says, go, love, again, even though... Uh, as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes, uh, despite uh, their spiritual adultery, despite the fact that they seem to value the tray bakes used in pagan worship more than they love the Lord, um, despite all that he's done for them, the Lord means Hosea's act to point prophetically to the Lord's determination to redeem his people. And by putting it in those terms to Hosea, maybe that's what rekindles Hosea's passion for Goma so that he's prepared to do that as he reflects on the Lord's greater love for his people. Maybe as he meditates long and hard on that, his own heart is melted and moved and he finds the strength and the grace again to go and love his wife, to buy her back and live with her once more. God has committed himself to Israel and he is determined to win them back. Now we saw how he planned to go about this in the previous chapter and it was, it was uh, that twofold strategy really. There was the chastening, the discipline, uh, frustrating her ways, he talks about hedging Israel in so that she's frustrated that the things she's going after just don't deliver what she's looking for. Um, we saw then the passionate wooing, how he planned to speak tenderly to her. Remember, that's literally speak to her heart, speak to her heart. But there's a price to be paid for the Lord too. Because he has to redeem his people. He has to buy them back. And so he says in verses 4 and 5, For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or idol. Afterwards the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. Now, that's an interesting mixture there of uh, sacred and profane. Sacrifice, sacred stones, well, they could, those could all be um, uh, orthodox part of their worshipping the Lord, Yahweh, or they could be part of pagan worship. Ephod, again, ephod, they ha uh, ephods were part of Israelite uh, worship. 
idle, obviously. That's profane, isn't it? So it's an interesting mixture there. Uh, but we're back to where we were in the first part of chapter 2. The Lord is threatening to discipline, to punish, to thwart, to frustrate, to withhold what they're chasing after. And in this way, he planned to get their attention so that, verse 5, they might return and seek the Lord once more. It's interesting he talks about seeking David their king because, of course, Hosea is preaching in the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember the two kingdoms had split up after Solomon's reign and actually it was the southern kingdom that kept that the, the line of David, the kings in the line of David going, going. So up in the north they'd already come away from that. They, they weren't, uh, bro- they'd broken away from being ruled by kings in David's line. But if they're going to return, if they're going to respond to the Lord's renewed commitment to them, they will need to submit themselves once more to the Lord's rule, to his anointed. That's who David represents, the, the Lord's anointed and the, one who, the ones who follow in that line. Bow the knee to the Lord's anointed, coming trembling with appropriate reverence and so to enjoy his blessings once again having been bought back, this is the response God is looking for. So this message is given to Hosea way back in the 8th century before Christ. The northern kingdom of Israel, not long after this, really, just at the end of Hosea's prophecy, probably, the northern kingdom of Israel was largely deported, dispersed, amongst the Assyrian Empire, probably, as I said, just a short while after these words were first spoken. How is the Lord going to fulfill his promise to his people? Well, we've already seen a glimpse of this, haven't we, in our previous sessions. We've already seen how chapter 2 is quoted in the New Testament, memorably, twice, in um, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, Uh, where he talks about once you are not a people, but now you are the people of God, playing on the name of one of Hosea's children, Loami, not my people. Once you had not received people, that mercy, that was another of uh, the names of the children, Lo Ruhamah, no mercy. Now you have received mercy. And uh, this is quoted again uh, in Romans 9 also. The Lord will keep his promises. The Lord will keep his promises promises. Hosea leaves us with that that tension of how he's going to do that. In the New Testament, we begin to see how he does that. He will redeem his people, but he's going to do so in a thoroughly creative way. That's really interesting to me. You know, when two people commit to each other in marriage... It is the most natural thing in the world for their love to overflow creatively, and most obviously, I suppose, in, in having children. What, what, uh, that's the most natural thing in the world, isn't it? We, our love doesn't want to, the, the love between a couple wants to produce more life to pour that love into. That's the most natural thing that happens. Um, New life is the proper outflow of committed, faithful, married love. Now, we all know that this can be thwarted, and it's really, really tough when that is thwarted. It's sad, it's heartbreaking. It is so painful. 
and it's difficult because that's what our love wants to do. It wants to find other people to bless. Now, when that does happen, people can still find creative ways of sharing that love. And some people do this incredibly, remarkably. Adoption is an obvious way where this happens. But also in putting into the lives of other children and into a church family life or whatever it might be. And it's astonishing when people do that despite their own frustration and heartbreak. Now, here is an interesting thing. God's love for the nation of Israel has been thwarted by Israel's unfaithfulness. She has not been prepared to dance. So how can God create new life? Where is that creativity going to flow? And Paul addresses this in Romans 9 to 11. And I think his answer seems to be twofold. Highly complex chapters there. I'm not saying I'm answering all the questions here. But there seems to be two prongs that are interested here. First of all, he says very clearly that the Jews' rejection of the Lord has led to the gospel being offered to non-Jews, to Gentiles. Um, amazingly, too. So that's the first thing. Uh, sorry, I'm a bit thrown because I think my uh, PowerPoint is just a bit out of... Uh, there we go. Uh, he says that. Um, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Uh, but amazingly too, Israel's rejection of Christ has led to sin being dealt with in one place. That's where that's supposed to come, isn't it? There we go. Sin being dealt with in one place. Concentrated as it has been on the true, the ultimate Israelites. Jesus Christ who comes and fulfills the purposes of Israel. And concentrated on Christ and dealt with on the cross. Israel's sin, which in turn, because Israel represents the nations to God, Israel's sin is where the whole world's sin has been uh, concentrated. Then the sin of the world is dealt with on the cross. And that leads to the offer of forgiveness and redemption being extended to all who believe in Christ, Jew and Gentile alike. Which is astonishing. Amen indeed. How creative. That is wonderful. But Paul also seems to have the expectation, we see this in, in Romans 11, that actually in time and through his working, this offering of redemption to non-Jews will in time have the effect of making Jews envious and so prompting them to turn to Christ. Paul seems to expect that at some point. It's certainly, he's certainly praying passionately for it. And as we've said the last two weeks, so should we be praying passionately for that. But do you see how in this way God's, the creativity of God's covenant commitment to Israel has overflowed to create new life throughout the world? That's astonishing. It's amazing. But in both Jew and Gentile, it is breathtaking. 
that his commitment to Israel has done that. The creative power, the creative genius of our wonderful Lord is seen in that. And we are the beneficiaries because his wedding invitation comes right down through the ages, even to us. Hallelujah. And so this notion of redemption is taken up and filled so richly for us in the New Testament. We had it. Do you remember Zachariah's song that Tom looked at? Uh, New Year's Day, wasn't it? Um, uh, Praise be to the Lord God of Israel because he has come and has redeemed his people. We have it in Ephesians chapter 1. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. We see the price God paid to redeem us is the blood, the death of his own son. In Romans 3, 23, 24, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We have been bought back from slavery to sin and death and the price is the death of Jesus himself. Redeemed. And so as Paul Notably says in 1 Corinthians, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. And then we have Ephesians 5. Where where, uh, the marriage relationship is brought fully into focus. The word redeem is not mentioned here, but this, this, this is the concept. God Christ giving himself up as the redemption price for his bride, the church. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. The redemption, the buying back is just the start, isn't it? He has the whole project of of transforming us. This is what Kate was talking about earlier. Into the likeness of his son. Astonishing. Christ gave himself up as the redemption price for his bride, the church, all who believe and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is us. That does include you, doesn't it? I really hope and pray it includes you. Have you heard his proposal? And have you responded by turning in repentance and faith and trusting in his death, receiving his new resurrection life and following him? If not, I wonder why. Why? What holds you back? Why are you refusing to be bought back even though Christ has paid the redemption price for you. Why would you? Why would you rather live with with the other so-called lovers who don't love you at all? Is that what you think, that somehow by following Christ, your life is going to be impoverished and you want to hold on to those other things, those other things that actually are God's, if that's what you're doing, your idols, or the idol of your own heart that you do not want to surrender control of your life to him. 
it's a paltry reward if that's what you do because those gods, those idols, they don't love you. They don't care for you. And they will not provide you. They will not sustain you. They will not enrich your life. Ultimately, all they will do is burden you, make use of you, and enslave you. So turn now, today, accept the proposal. It's there for you. And he loves you so much. And then along with all of us, let us go on living in response, seeking the Lord. That's what he said, isn't it? Back in Hosea, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, while we, we seek the one in David's line, the true anointed, the Lord Jesus himself. We seek him and follow him and tremble in reverence before him and so enjoy his blessings. Going on living in response. This is the dynamic of the relationship, isn't it? To go on living in response. Seeking the Lord, acknowledging Christ the anointed as king, living with him, your heavenly husband, as he lives with you, standing in the objective reality of having been redeemed, living daily in dynamic relationship. That's the response. mentioned this film quite a bit over the years, I suppose, uh, Saving Private Line. I guess it must have had quite an impact on me. But in Spielberg's epic film, set uh, on the days after D-Day, Second World War, Captain Tom Hanks, I can't remember his name in the film, he's tasked with trying to find the last surviving son of Mrs. Ryan. All her other sons have been killed in combat. So, spoilers, I mean, it has been out for 25 years, so guess if you haven't watched it now, you may never. Spoilers, he does find Private Ryan, and he saves him. <laughs> but it doesn't go smoothly. As Private Ryan, uh, to save Private Ryan, a number of men lose their lives. Good men, good soldiers. And as Private Ryan draws near a dying Tom Hanks at the end, Hanks croaks at him two words with his dying breath. Earn this, he says. Now, wow. Earn this? What a burden to place on this man's life, Private Ryan. How can he? How can he possibly earn that sacrifice made on his behalf? Couldn't even begin it, could he? Good news, friends. That is not what Jesus says to us. Not what the Lord says to us. He does not say to us, earn this. Having paid the redemption price for our life, which is nothing less than the life of his son, he's does not, he does look for a response. But he does not say, earn this. We couldn't ever. How could we? So what is the response? Well, he does. He calls us to live in the reality that we've been redeemed for. Not to earn, but to enjoy what has been bought for us at such great cost. That's one response we could make, a false response to think we could earn instead of trying to, uh, looking to enjoy. 
Here's another false response. This is uh, Chekhov's masterpiece play, The Cherry Orchard. It's uh, set in Russia uh, not long before the revolution, beginning of the 20th century. And this uh, wealthy Russian family, well, they used to be wealthy, but things have not gone wrong, and they're having to come, they've not gone well, having to come to terms with the fact they're going to have to sell off the family estate, including the precious cherry orchard. And uh, there's an ancient faithful retainer, an old servant called Fears, who uh, is born on the estate. He was born years before the emancipation of the serfs. Now, that's something that happened in Russian history, 1861. Before that date, if you were a serf, a peasant, then basically you belonged on the land and were pretty much owned by the person who owned the land. So if that person bought and sold land, then you'd go with it, and that was it. You just Anyway, that was all the, they tried to do away with that in 1861. Fears, however, who's grown up with this, he looks back to those days fondly. He loved life as it was before 1861, where, as he puts it, well, you know, the, the peasants belonged to the masters, and actually the masters belonged to the peasants, and everyone knew where they were, and it was fine. There was a security there. There wasn't much freedom that they felt secure. And he still harks back to those old days. At the end of the film, at the end of the play, um, they've sold off the land, the family is moving away, and Fears has literally nowhere to go. And they say to him, you can go anywhere you want. He doesn't know where to go. He's saying, tell me where to go. He doesn't know. He's hanging on, and he stays. So the family departs. He's left there. Stuck in slavery to the old ways. Unwilling to move beyond the slavery into which he was born. Friends, as believers, we can do the same. We can be living our lives in a way that actually we're just still stuck in the old slavery. We're not enjoying the redemption that Christ has bought for us. Chasing the other lovers, chasing the heartless false gods, or perhaps that false god of our own heart, refusing to bend the knee, thinking that's somehow better. living as if we had not been freed. How sad that is. How tragic. Now, maybe that rings true for you today. I don't know what it is, but maybe there's something in your life that is just actually more associated with that kind of slavery to slit sin. And you've not, the penny's not quite dropped, that it's not, it's not enriching your life, it's enslaving your Christ redeemed you from that burden. And maybe you have to do business with him about that today. How tragic if you don't. The price is paid, wrote Graham Kendrick in that wonderful hymn that we're just about to sing. The price is paid. Come, let us enter into all that Jesus died to make our own. Let's pray. Lord God, we stand before you in awe and reverence with our hearts just melted by your grace towards us. We do not deserve your love. 
even having known your love, we stray into unfaithfulness. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son to buy us back. Thank you that you love us so passionately to do that. And thank you that uh, far from wanting to tie us up with oughts and shoulds, you want to release us into living how we were created to live, living to give you glory, living to love you and to love others, which is actually better for us and better for everyone around us. Lord, we know we stumble with that. We know we struggle. Thank you so much that you go on calling us into that, Lord. And please, by your spirit, enable us to take those steps into freedom and away from slavery. Empower us with your spirit, Lord. Amen.